Life can take us on unexpected paths that leave us with emotional wounds and scars. But these scars do not have to be a burden that we carry alone. I'm Jocelyn Biederset, a childhood sexual assault survivor, and this is Invisible Scars, a podcast where we connect and learn from those who have come out stronger on the other side of trauma. In today's episode, I am sitting down with former NHL hockey player Aaron Valpatti. In 2005, Aaron was in a horrible campfire accident that should have ended his hockey career forever. With dreams of an NCAA scholarship and an internal grit that was bred into him from a very young age, Aaron refused to let this be his ending. Through discovering the power of visualization, Aaron defied the odds and he unleashed a part of him that could not be stopped. He now shares his incredible story of adversity and teaches these powerful visualization practices to help other people achieve their big dreams. I hope you guys are ready for this episode because it is so good. There is so much to unpack here, Erin. You have the most incredible <laughs> story. I was saying earlier when you first got here that I would read a couple chapters and I'd have to put it down and be like, holy fuck, like seriously, did this really happen? Like you've had an incredible amount of adversity. Yeah, it's it's been a wild ride. It's funny you say that because I I sort of take it as a compliment that it's a, it is a good read when mm-hmm. people will message me and be like, dude, uh, like, I just, I, I had to put it down. I can't read it anymore. Yeah. Like, to me, I'm like, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. In a way. <laughs> it's a good thing. It's a great thing. It, yeah. You know, and we're going to get into that because you're, I read through your book and it took me a little bit because, I, again, I had to keep putting it down, but it invoked every emotion in me. Like, I would laugh. I cried. Yeah. I was like overwhelmed with emotion. And I'm such a visual thinker. So, like, when I'm reading and I'm a very empathetic person, I can actually like visualize what's happening. And I think that's why it was so overwhelming for me. But it was, it had everything. It had everything. Yeah. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, <laughs> you did great. And we talked about that, but it was, uh, I don't want to say risky project, but it was, yeah. you know, one that I was a little bit tentative with and I'm really glad that I did it. And yeah, the, the feedback's been great. Yeah. So. What an accomplishment. So before we get into all that, cause like I said, there's so much to unpack before every episode, um, we like to do something called mantra moments where my guests will maybe share something that has helping them get through some hard times or what you do every day to help with your mental health, either an affirmation or something that you do daily. I mean, I do this practice daily yeah. now and, you know, your visualization and I taught, I've talked about that in the book where I've made that mistake too many times in my life where I'll get to where I'm going and then it'd be like, okay, I'm done. Like I did it. I'm done. You know what? When I was reading the book, there were so many times that I was like, he stopped his visualization. Yeah, he stopped. What, what's he thinking? I just didn't, you know, didn't have the wherewithal at that age to think like, well, that's done. What else? Is, what's mm-hmm. next? Or what else could I do? Um, so that's a big one for me exercise Mm -hmm. whatever that looks like and i have you know different hobbies i do now uh i currently wreck my knee so i'm kind of like on the shelf for for some of that stuff but you know not from just the way i physically feel but it's a mental thing for me Mm -hmm. where i find i just i you know get a little more irritable if i so it's i just know i i feel you know the best about myself if i'm i've exercised i do my practice uh, and really just being present is a big one with the kids especially too mm-hmm. um that's a big one for me where i just I check out with the phone and i just i'm in the moment so those are probably the biggest things yeah yeah that's such good advice the phone thing is a big one for me i've talked about that so many times it's hard to put it away especially when you're it running is. a business which you know yeah. but like you have young kids and it requires so requires so much of you totally and even with our young like our five-month-old they're just they're drawn to it mm-hmm 
and it's you know it, that's a whole other topic yeah, but yeah it's scary yeah it is and it but you wonder why you know that they get so obsessed with it and it's just they see you with it from day one and, totally right and so yeah really just try and limit that mm-hmm. and i always joke with my wife like if we could go off the grid like that would be my dream <laughs> you know what? I say that all the time too. There's this um do- documentary on Netflix. It's called like The Biggest Little Farm or something. I think I've seen that. Yeah. And yeah. I watched it and I was like, okay, well now I want to move yeah, and yeah. have a sustainable farm and not worry about my phone and just have like, yeah. a happy family living on a farm. We're one we're one step closer. We we bought a little bit of acreage and so we want to nice. do like the chickens yes. and and it's just so good for the kids. Like mm-hmm. just go get the eggs, clean up and mm-hmm. help help me out. My my oldest is eight and I'm I've asked him, I'm like, you think you could do a ride him lawnmower? Like, I think you're almost ready. And he, I got him on it the other day, but he can't reach the pedal. And so maybe another year. That's awesome. So good. So I said earlier, there's so much to unpack here. So much to go over. So for everyone who's listening, you, Aaron, you were burnt on 40% of your body in a horrible campfire accident in 2005. I think you were like 19 or something. Yeah. 19 turning 20. Yeah. An accident (laughs) that really should have ended your hockey career. Well, I was told that it would. Yeah. Yeah. And and so I'll just, sorry, not correct. I guess correct you. When you go through a burn injury like that, I was a hundred percent burnt and the 40% was like the third and second. Right. right? Okay. Um, But no, that's a formality. No, that's wild. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad you clarified that. You know, in leading up to this burn, you didn't think that you had a huge hockey career, but you had hopes of going and getting a scholarship, an NCAA scholarship. And suddenly you were in the fight for your life. So I want you to, if you could, just kind of go into detail of what that kind of looked like for you. Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll preface it with, you know, I was, I was that guy as, you know, many, many of us at that age, right? You think you're invincible and untouchable. Um, and I was just, I was just always doing stupid shit and being reckless um, for a few different reasons. Like looking back and reflecting, I'm like, you know, I'm feeding a young ego. I imagine, too, your position on the team as a fighter. Well, that was the other part was just, I don't know. I was like the crazy kid from Revelstoke, and I, I was the fighter, and I felt like I just needed to feed that and fuel that, that stereotype a little mm-hmm. bit. So, yeah, that involved just doing things for laughs and attention, right? And so every year-end party we would have, like, I don't know what the kids do now, but, you know, after our season ended, we would just, we'd go party for a week, and it was like, the end of the season and the kickoff to summer and you're saying goodbye to your buddies mm-hmm. and we would we would go camping and and have a big fire and a party and the year prior i had been you call them beer bombs or whatever you want to call them but it was like a molotov cocktail except i would put the, the lid back on the bottle and the bottle would you know fill up with gas mm-hmm. and it, it would explode and be like a flamethrower 30 feet into the air not smart but again yeah. I, I told you what you know the reasoning and why I was doing that. Mm-hmm. So the second, my second year in Vernon with the Vipers ended and all the guys were, were asking me, you know, you can do your pyro show. And I said, hell yeah. And I thought my, in my head, I'm like, well, how can I make this bigger and better? And then, you know, the answer was, well, I need more gas. So I was using, uh, I had a wine bottle in like one of those old, like Colt 45 bottles. So 750 milliliters in each. And I'd filled them both up with gas. And it was kind of like the finale. I had like run through a bunch of the other, I I don't say normal ones, but the beer bottles or whatever. And then I'm walking around the the party and there's, there's our whole team. And then there's, you know, say 20 other random people there and just kind of, yeah, walking around, revving everyone up. 
and I have the two bottles in my like like kangaroo pouch in your sweater in your hoodie in your yeah. hoodie and all of a sudden I was soaking wet and so the, the, the bottoms had hit and, and busted so now I have all this gas on me and uh we had obviously been drinking I obviously knew there was gas on me um uh, but I just I didn't respect the dangers of of gas and the, the vapors you know you're you're essentially like I don't know the the radius but i would imagine like a four or five foot radius radius around you mm-hmm. right and just a you're just a walking bomb at that point and i just I, maybe five minutes or so went by and i don't know why i did this to this day but i i i just thought i need to get this sweater off me because i just i reek like gas um and i could have just maybe i didn't want to just litter and throw it on the ground and so i just I went to toss it in the fire and I thought I kept a safe distance away. And, and it was just like, a, I, I say it's like a detonator cord to dynamite. This little trail of flame just followed me and just, and up I went. And unbelievable. And I just bolted like that, that fight or flight kicks in and I just ran. And it was the worst thing I could have done. Right. Unbelievable. Yeah. You know, I think too, just like the people who love you and care about you that were at that party, how traumatizing it was for them to see you like that. And we'll get into that because one thing that really stuck out to me when you, I want you to kind of talk about the ride into the hospital, the girl who drove you in, I could not stop thinking about her. Yeah. I, I talked to, so it was her and her boyfriend who was on the team who drove me to the hospital. And I remember I never directly talked to her. That's I wish I would have. I I talked to, you know, her her boyfriend Ryan afterwards and just I didn't necessarily apologize because it was just a crazy I just, you know, said I, I hope she's doing okay. Mm-hmm. Um I think I maybe I did apologize for because you gotta understand, like I was screaming at this young woman to get to the hospital and you know we were 30 minutes away, right? So it was a pretty rough scene for sure. Absolutely. And I imagine too, like you talk about in the book, just like the smell and what that, that you had no clothes left. And there's nothing left. There was just nothing left. And you're in the front seat of her car. And I often, I thought about her so much reading that story. It was just like for her to have to, your life was in her hands at that point. And she was trying so hard to get you there. Totally. So traumatizing for her. Yeah. And she, she was amazing. And, you know, I just, it's a bit of a faint memory now. Um, I just remember just to paint a picture for you because i like i'm that shock had worn off because originally i I was in no pain at all because you're in so much shock Mm -hmm. and then about 10 minutes later that was full on uh 10 out of 10 pain and so i'm like rocking back and forth like humming screaming eventually i was passing out because it was just too much and i would kind of come to and and i would i would just i would scream and like get to the hospital and she handled it really well and she you know, she was more talking to her boyfriend uh, because I just I wasn't there. It was mm-hmm. in like another world. And she's like, you know, is he going to make it like I'm, I'm trying? I'm going as fast as I can. And he he was a big part of it. So he was keeping everyone kind of he was talking to me. He was talking to her. Um, but it was uh, it was pretty chaotic. Yeah. 
insane. So you talk about how you were in complete shock in the beginnings and you take off running. Mm-hmm. What happens next? Are they are your friends chasing you down? Yeah. And you know, how how do you get the fire out? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So when I took off, it was such an out-of-body experience. Like I was again in no pain. I just remember this like really intense, warm feeling, but I was also in a huge state of panic. I was like, I'm on fire. Mm-hmm. This isn't good, obviously. And yeah, people always ask me, like, how long were you on fire fire for? And I obviously too long, maybe 20 to 30 seconds kind of thing. I don't really know. But yeah, I, I was just running. And unfortunately, so we were up in Blue Nose Mountain, like kind of by Lumbee. Mm-hmm. And it was April. So there was no snow. There was no water. There was no grass. It was just like dirt and rocks and it was dry. Um, so I eventually, I wasn't consciously thinking this, but I, I just started rolling around and trying to like, I was hitting myself trying to tap it out. But again, I learned all this later. You can't put out a gas fire that way. It just, it, it kind of just bounces around on you. I had no idea. And it kind of just moves around. You you have to smother it. You have to get rid of the oxygen, right? So I'm just rolling around. It's it's not going out. And, you know, I got, there's like rocks and stuff embedded in my skin because eventually my clothes were gone. I think, you know, I was half like peeling it off and they were just eventually just burnt off. But yeah, I was fast, which didn't help me because I, (laughs) guys were, you know, yelling at me like, my nickname was patty like patty stop because they were just they're trying to get to me and they you know i i rolled around got up sprinted again and eventually and this is it's it's just so crazy how how it works but i just i remember eventually the thought of dying crossed my mind and i was just because i don't know that you know they were back there it's just in my own world and i'm just like if this if i can't get this out like this is it yeah um and that's when i got tackled from behind they finally got me to the ground and uh and started beating me with their jackets and they a lot of guys burnt their arms and hands putting it out um and then yeah they was out pretty quick uh and then i got situated on a cooler totally naked and yeah you talk about the trauma for other people it was it was a pretty grim scene like a lot of people were crying kind of like that distressed whispering like what the fuck are we like we need mm-hmm. to get this guy to a hospital now. And there was no service, so we couldn't call 911. And we're like, who can? This is at like one in the morning. You had all things going against you. In the middle you. of nowhere. Yeah. Right? So thankfully, she wasn't drinking uh, Ryan's girlfriend. Um, but I just remember, yeah, pe- people looking at me. At, and again, the smell. People were like covering their noses, looking at me like, this is very bad. And that's when I, because at this point, I had no idea what state I was in. And I remember meeting their gaze and looking down at my body. And that's when I realized that this was, this was pretty bad. And I had done a number. When you look down at your body, did it kind of trigger something in you that you started to feel things? Because I'm like, you know, when you don't see something, it's really hard to connect to it. I'm wondering what it was like for you when you looked down and you saw the damage. Yeah, that didn't invoke the physical pain quite in that moment. I think the shock was just so still so much, but it really it really evoked a fear, a big fear that, you know, I knew it was serious, um, you know, just not to get too graphic, but like just piles of skin, like lumped around certain areas of my body. Um, I know one of the guys, cause I didn't, you know, I, I didn't really talk to the guys, you know, we didn't have phone. I didn't have a phone. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the guys I didn't talk to, to until later that, that fall at camp. Um, 
And I, I remember talking to the one guy, this is months later, and, and we were all hugging. And he was like, I knew it was bad when I, I was kind of walking over to you. And I, I thought you were taking your shirt off, but you just like skinned yourself. Oh and I just God. remember like my skin was just like it was coming off and really getting like a, a look of I'd never seen a third degree burn up until that point. But it's this I think I described it in the book as, you know, if you again, this might be a little graphic, but if you like cook a full fish and you like burn the outside, side mm-hmm. and it, it was like that mixture of like deathly white charred and then this like flesh kind of like spattered through through. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I saw that, I was like, what is this is not good. Yeah. Um, so traumatizing for everybody involved. Yeah. But I, I mean, give credit to everyone there. I, I think within a few minutes, I was in a car gone out of there. Um, Unbelievable. And given a cooler, which at the later in the burn unit, I was told that that saved my right arm and hand. Like it looked, I have scars here you can see, but that was the. That was the first hint of pain I got was my was my arm and hand. And I had that in a cooler of ice for 30 minutes. And they said that saved saved my right arm and hand. So so thank God for that. Which if it if it didn't, you would have wouldn't have had the hockey career that you did. Yeah. Probably not. Unbelievable. Yeah. So you get to the hospital and this is actually something that really, really got me. Was can you talk about what happened when you got to the hospital and you opened the door to get out of the car? <laughs> yeah. So again, you gotta remember that I was I was passing out from the pain. It was so delirious. bad. Just, yeah, totally delirious. So when I, I, I just remember I could see the hospital and I could see the emergency lights. And I don't know if I thought we had already stopped, but I just think my body forced me out of that car. And I got out before we, we pulled up and the car was still moving. And unfortunately, you know, just sloughed off a bunch of more skin and I spun around and I just, I got up and I ran into the emergency room. And, you know, again, like, to find some humor in it all. I always tell people like picture the emergency room <laughs> at whatever 1 2 a.m. you know I always say it's like your token you, you maybe have a, a screaming baby someone has chest pains maybe some guy got in a fight at the bar and he needs to get repairs and then in runs this totally ass naked <laughs> burnt guy screaming at the top of his lungs and I can just imagine everyone's faces and their they were probably like, uh, yeah, you, you can help him. <laughs> you go first. Yeah, it's he, fine. He, he can go. He can go. <laughs> it's not um, funny, but like at the same no, time. No, but you got to find right? humor like, in it now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I don't, they must have, they hit me with whatever and I was out. And you were I, out. That's the last thing I remember. It's crazy because yeah. that was just literally the beginning of your journey. Like, yeah, the pain had just begun. Yeah. The climb had just begun. And kind of take us through what that was like for you the next couple of weeks through the hospital, because it's not an easy recovery to come back from a burn like that. Oh, I, mean, I was totally oblivious to what was in store. It really was. But yeah, this is where the whole, like you said, this is really where the whole journey starts. Um, and I guess, you know, where the book starts and really where that chapter of my life starts with just kind of unlocking this this power of, of the mind and, and visualization specifically. But yeah, I don't remember too much the first few days. It was very foggy. Um, I didn't even know I was in Vancouver that, that next morning when I just kind of faintly woke up. I, I remember seeing my parents like very emotional, just staring at me, you know, telling me you're going to be okay, which, you know, they didn't know at that point. You know, they thought you were going to die. Yeah, they were. They didn't know if I was going to make it. Yeah, I don't know if they thought I was going to die per se, but um, they didn't know what it, 
what does this look like? Because I was full mummy head to toe. You know, yeah, they just didn't know. Mm-hmm. No one knew at that point. Um, and it wasn't until day three, I had my first debridement procedure, which, you know, I don't know if we need to get into detail with that, but it's a pretty grueling piece of the recovery where they just, they put you under and they essentially skin you alive to keep those eventual skin graft sites clean and fresh, you know, just to, to mediate the risk of infection, which is very high with, with burns. Mm-hmm. You, and I want to talk about that for a second, because, you know, like you say, they put you, they put you under, so you're not awake mm-hmm. through it, yeah. but the pain afterwards. Oh yeah. The morphine can't touch that one. It, yeah. That is something like mentally how you get through that. I'm not even sure. Yeah. I was going to say that part got worse over time until I had, you know, started, you know, working in this practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it, it's just that that constant pain that doesn't go away. And that's really starts to affect you mentally. Like physically, I was a pretty tough guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a high pain tolerance. But yeah, like after a week, after two weeks, after three weeks, it's just it's pretty relentless. And it's coming every couple of days, right? Yeah. Like your mental toughness is really fucking tested at that point. Oh, big time. So that pain's like 10 out of 10. Um, and the morphine, it's hard to touch that one. And then the rest of the time, I, I always say it's kind of like getting tattooed for 24 hours a day. That's the baseline mm-hmm. where you're just laying there and it you're just feels like someone's tattooing your whole body. Um, which, you know, I don't know, for me, that's like a six out of 10. It's, it's, it's enough where you're uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, so you never fully, you know, get reprieve from that. But anyway, so so I woke up, came out of this first procedure, and this is where the doctor's going to come in the room and relay my prognosis because again, we didn't know at that point. And the first thing he did was look at my my parents because they're 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 an absolute wreck still. They haven't slept. They're am I going to make it? They don't mm-hmm. know. So he he looks at them and says, "Your son is not going to die. Um, he's going to be okay." He's a very lucky young man. Um, it looks, you know, someone was clearly watching out for him. His face isn't going to be permanently scarred by the looks of it. And it doesn't look like we're going to have to graft over your, his joints, which is really, really a big win. Like my skin grafts literally stop at the top of my leg here. Unbelievable. Yeah, crazy. So he said that that's a major win, but it's going to be a long road here. And he's going to be in here for a long time. He's going to make a full recovery. But, you know, prepared for a long haul. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, he was like the, the next few days and few weeks is going to be focused on pain management and rest. Really, that's it. And we'll get the skin graft surgery done here, hopefully in a couple of weeks kind of thing. So I think, well, my parents took some solace in that fact that, you know, I was, I was going to make it. Uh, all I could think about in that moment, I didn't, I almost tuned it, all that out. And I just thought, like, I have camp in three and a half months (laughs) and so again like going back to what you what you said right before we started with just you know my dream i never thought about pro hockey because i wasn't really that good like i was a fourth line fighter in junior a just snuck into junior a so i put the governor on that dream at like a pretty young age uh, because as, as hockey players and you know especially in canada like yeah every kid wants to go play in the nhl uh but I didn't want to be maybe naive and I just, I knew from a, a fairly young age of 13, 14, that that wasn't me. Um, and I didn't give myself credit for what was cap- truly or what I was possible or what I was truly capable of. So the NCAA was, that was like my NHL. That was my dream. And I was going into my last year of junior eligibility because you can't play 
past 21. And I had yet to even talk to a scout yet. But I'm just like, if I slowly add these layers to my game, which I had been doing, I was confident that I could get a scholarship somewhere. Maybe it was Div 3. I didn't care. And uh, so I asked the doctor that. And I'm, (laughs) again, to find some humor, I'm sure no one has asked the doctor that uh, in the burn unit. Maybe, but I doubt it. And he just looked at me like I was still on fire, basically. And, you know, he kind of just froze. And that's when I had that moment of like, oh, shit, it's over. And, you know, he laid that gavel down and, and eventually said, you know, listen, these recoveries take years, not months. Like, we'll look at getting you in a pair of skates in a non-competitive environment a couple of years down the road. But, it, like, you're going to be in here for, for a long time. Like, let's just focus on that. And so, you know, I, I listened to him and that's when I, I kissed the dream goodbye, really. What did that do to you emotionally? Like, this was your whole life. This is what yeah. you'd done since you were like, what, three years old? Totally. Yeah. So those first two weeks was really just trying to balance those different emotions. Uh, you know, on one hand, yeah, I was really down and depressed. I mean, the pain didn't help with that and just that warfare of just constant pain. But uh, yeah, just that loss of identity, right? And just, well, what is my life supposed to look like now as a burn survivor and, and not a hockey player? So that was really hard. Um, but I think, you know, the other side of it was I was also very grateful that I was A, alive, and that B, I, I was going to make a full recovery and I might have some gnarly scars. But I mean, I already had a bunch on my face and it didn't bother me or anything like that. Um, and yeah, so I think that really helped with just reframing it. But it was just this bad, these battle of these two different emotions and just kind of sit because you're, you're just sitting there all day. Yeah, down, you're a sitting duck. Sitting with your thoughts all day um, and trying to deal with the pain. That's all it is. So at what point did you pick up these visualizations and kind of think to yourself, like, I, I'm not, no, I don't accept this. Like, this cannot be my story. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's funny because in my life, and I think a lot of people can probably relate to this, but a lot of it is, is being aware sometimes. And so for me, there's always been like these on this path of life, there's always been these little carrots that kind of dangle and they're like, Hey, over here, like, come get me, come get me. And it's whether like, do we choose to listen to that or not? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was my first sort of like off the beaten path um, or epiphany, if you want to call it fork in the road. And I got a call from my junior coach who, you know, it sounds like. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he called and to paint a picture for you again, like I can't move and I'm totally mummy head to toe. And so my parents like try and wedge the phone and in between my shoulder and my ear and I'm all hopped up on morphine and uh you know the coach said hey you know how you doing and I said well he'd been better but holding up and he said listen he so this is just and we can talk about this later how this like whole Canucks ending is I feel like it's just been manifesting my whole life and I didn't even know it maybe Mm -hmm. but he was at our coach was at in Vancouver scouting something I believe and he was sitting next to one of the assistant coaches from Brown University and they get to talking and the coach from Brown, or I think Mike, our coach, asked him, like, what, what kind of player are you looking for? And, and he said, and his exact words, this is what Mike's telling me, is that they need a guy to put the fear of God in the defenseman of the Ivy League. 
And my coach is like, oh, do I have a perfect guy for you? Because that was kind of my thing. I was like physical and, and I could really hit. And uh, he said, there's one major problem. He's laid up in the burn unit and, you know, the future doesn't look great. So he said, they want to talk to you. Just give them a call. I know you got the time. And uh, we called this coach from Brown University. and It was left really open-ended. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he said, we're sorry to hear what happened. We wish you the best in recovery. And almost like as a formality, you know, maybe we'll get to see you play one day down the road kind of thing. And both of us knowing like that wasn't really on the table anymore. And, and we hung up the phone. And I just remember it was a very emotional moment with my parents sitting there. And I was just thinking like, I've literally worked my whole life to talk to one of these guys, one of these NCAA scouts. And I'd finally done it. And, and that hard work had paid off and, and look where I was and look what I had done to myself. And so I, na- I naturally sort of sat with that. And then I, then I started asking questions and I started asking, well, why can't I play? So they're mm-hmm. telling me I can't. Well, why? And there was a really, really good <laughs> list of reasons why. Infection was probably number one, you know, especially like we didn't wash our hockey gear back then. The last thing you want to do is be sticking a burn in right. there. And that's not a recipe for success. <laughs> uh, so that was probably one. Uh, the skin grafts were going to be too limiting, too painful. They would take years to fully heal, which was all true. They did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had to wear a full bodysuit for two years. I couldn't sweat. So that was another major risk where, because again, we didn't know, we knew I was about 40% second, third degree burns, but to what degree was the skin grafts going to make up? We didn't know if that was closer to 20 or closer to 40. But if you're creeping up to 40% skin grafts and you're playing a competitive sport and you can't cool your body down properly, then there's major complications with heart rate and all that stuff. So that was a major risk. And I don't know, I, after having that talk and realizing like how close I was in my head, I just thought I heard like, basically you're telling me it's going to hurt too much. And I thought, well, and this is naive thinking by, by me at the time, but I thought, well, it can't be worse than what I've just gone through these last couple of weeks. Yeah, um, true. Which again, was a little bit naive thinking, but yeah, I just, in that moment, I, the, the light bulb just went off and I just, I said, I refuse to let these people tell me what my future holds Mm -hmm. and what I'm capable of. And, you know, I, I I made this vow to myself, like bring on the pain, like I'm okay with it. So, you know, what's interesting, like as you're, you're telling me this, I am a firm believer in everything kind of happens for a reason and life is just like, you may not know in the moment why, yeah. but you'll find out later kind of thing. And, you know, if Mike hadn't have been at whatever he was at in Vancouver and met that guy, like, and got you to call him, like, if that conversation yeah. hadn't have happened between the two of them, right place at the right time, it invokes something in you. Like, it brought back that Aaron spark, that spark that, like, got totally. you to where you were in your life, right? Yeah. Do you think sometimes if all that hadn't lined up with like Mike being at the same place as this Brown coach, like what your life would have looked like post burn unit. It's hard to say, but I, I totally think I probably would have just, maybe that would have happened way later, but maybe it would have been too late. Yeah. Um, also just kind of lost your spark, right? Like so defeated. Yeah, totally. I, I do think this is another topic. Well, I guess it's related, but I think with my upbringing and my relationship with my dad, I do think like I had some baseline level of predisposed grit Mm -hmm. just from, again, my childhood was was great, but just the way I was raised with work ethic and the way my parents worked, I do think that so, and I've been asked this where maybe if I don't have that, I don't make that decision after that call. Like, because that's again, with that carrot dangling, I could have just 
done nothing and like rolled the dice and like, hey, maybe that'll happen, but it, it wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So. And it makes me think too, like I've talked to a ton of trauma survivors on this and being one myself, every, every expert that I've spoken to says that the key to successful trauma survival and and healing from it is having a solid foundation at home, specifically in those early years. And you had a great relationship with your parents. They were like, so there for you. They loved you. They supported you. And you know, I, that it has to be a part of it, right. As to why you came out of this. Yeah. Yeah. Once I made this decision and and for me, that's always where it started. It's like, I'm full in, I've made the choice and there's a lot of power with that. But one, because I had given up that dream, mind you, it was a short period for two weeks where I just, I surrendered and I'm like, this is my life now. Yeah. Once I reclaimed that, it was just, it, like that inner fire was burning so hot. And I just, I literally made, I made a promise that I was willing to die. Like literally I would have died before giving up. There's a lot of power with that. Mm-hmm. Right. And so this is where, and because you know, people like yourself ask me like, well, how did you discover visualization? And this is, this is how once I had made that choice and that promise to myself, um, I couldn't move. I was still bedridden in a burn unit. Yeah. Right. So my body was totally out of commission. And so I figured, well, what can I do? And all I, my mind was all I had. So I had heard of visualization. I didn't practice it up until that point. I didn't read any fancy books. I mean, I have now, and that came later in my life, but yeah, I just started visualizing everything that that I wanted. So that consists of of four things, and, and you read it in the book. But uh, number one was I knew I needed to get out of that hospital way sooner than they were telling me if I was going to play hockey. So I started, I I started visualizing at a cellular level those burn injuries healing. And I'm know, obsessed with this. Yeah. So people like you and in, in in our space, they see that. Other people think I'm crazy for telling them that I healed faster because of this, but you know, it, it's very true. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a lot of power with the mind. So I just spent, you know, I got to transport myself into this other reality, essentially, not the current physical one we're in. And that's what I, you know, I teach that now in my business, like there are no limitations up here. So I want you to get rid of all that, you know? And like with my athletes, I say, you know, if if you want to say you want to play bigger and I'm like, I literally want you to think you're 10 feet tall because that will start to spill over because your brain actually doesn't know the difference. Right. Anyways, so we can get into I that. I know. I'm so excited because I love but, this conversation. Uh, so that was one. And just, I started reframing the pain because the first two weeks was like, go away pain. Like, cause it fucking hurt. Like, let's <laughs> not. Right. And just, you're trying to get rid of it, get rid of it. So as soon as I flipped that and like, I welcomed it, I, I just, you know, I, in a, obviously in a way it's your body healing, Mm -hmm. but I just, I used it as fuel and I just like bring the pain. Like I knew that was my body healing and I would almost like send that to my cells in a way. Right. And just focus on that. And it's amazing how much that, I mean, granted time was passing as well, Mm -hmm. but it just, it just changed everything. Your mindset is so freaking important in this moment. It's so crazy. Yeah. So that was number one. I spent a lot of time visualizing that. And then Again, like this technique I teach now, I just sort of stumbled upon it, right? In this with like kind of thinking of your life as a movie. Um, And again, this wasn't my thinking in the time. I was just visualizing these things that I wanted. And so the next one was walking out of the doors to the burn unit. I would just visualize that and feeling like the wind on my face. 
going on this journey, right? Um, this comeback of a lifetime kind of thing. And then I would imagine my season opener, that game, that first game with the Vipers and like just put myself in the dressing room with all the guys, especially like we had all experienced that together. Mm-hmm. So just kind of living in that pocket and sitting in that and then just like just stepping on the ice, getting my gear on and, and seeing my burns, knowing that they were like not just a part of me, but that how they made me like un- unstoppable and untouchable. Um, things like that. And then the, the guiding star in the visualization was that commitment letter to Brown. So I would just obsess over that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just imagine like having the paper in one hand and a pen in the other and just seeing my name flow on that page and, and go to Brown. And uh, yeah, it's, it really unlocked a superpower in me. And uh, yeah, like we might skip over a big part of it, but uh, yeah, I got in the, out of the hospital in six weeks which was, you know, maybe half the time. Unbelievable. Yeah. And, uh, and played in that season opener and committed to Brown, you know, a few months after that. As you know, like that summer was hell. Yes. It was It was complete hell. And I also want to touch on the fact that, again, it wasn't without adversity. No. Yeah. So, but that's why is because I had the, the mindset, but our body's the governor, mm-hmm. right? So my body was begging me to stop. Um, you know, it's saying we, we're trying to heal from a major surgery here and you're not like just recovering. Like you're trying to train for fucking hockey and you, <laughs> I could barely walk. <laughs> it's unbelievable. You know, in, in our pre-interview kind of thing, you said something that really freaking hit home with me. Um, you said every piece of success I've achieved has always been preceded by extreme adversity. So I, li- I owe my life to the hard times. Yeah, and what you and you just said that a few minutes ago, right? Yeah, and it's it's just so true. And I don't know it in the moment. No. So it's nice, or nice isn't the right word, but it's 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 interesting now because anytime I go through hard times now, I know that you know somewhere down the road I'm gonna be look back and be like, I thank God I went through that. Oh, you know, and it's something that can only come with age and experience. Experience. Ex- experience with something that has been so traumatic that you start to realize like, okay, I'm going to be okay on the other side of this because I have before. Totally. Yeah. It's crazy. And you know, I want everyone to read your book because there are so many things. Every time something great was coming for you, something was in your way that you had to overcome. Like you had kidney stones, you had to have your appendix removed. Like these are all things within a few months of that. Honestly, Erin, like I cannot believe the things you had to overcome every single time you had something big coming your way. Yeah, it's that's. But again, like I, I don't know any other way. <laughs> I think it's all by design. Yeah, and you and, know, back to the whole thing with your parents and having that kind of support. You know, I yeah. would love for you to kind of touch on what you wanted to say about what that was like for you. Yeah, so I made this decision, and eventually, by week, I think it was week three. We were just waiting around for my surgery. Mm-hmm. So I was starting to feel better. And Your skin graft surgery. Right. Yeah. And unfortunately, I kept getting, I kept getting bumped because you got to remember uh, at the time, and this is 2005, there were only 10 beds in the burn unit. So mm-hmm. the 10 worst burns in the province are in there. I was not one of those. Like there's people that are in comas and like literally fighting for their lives, right? And I mean, some of the injuries there are just, oh man, heart wrenching. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I always say the burn unit is, it's one of the most amazing places, but it's almost one of the, also one of the most terrifying and just people are just 
it's constant screaming and pain. And it's I just, mean, the doctors and nurses that work there. Oh, they're they're amazing. I can't they're imagine so amazing. what they take home with them. Talk about like support and just what they do. Yeah, it's 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 pretty remarkable. So I finally, like I said, by week three ish, I was able to to leave in a wheelchair. I can't, I couldn't move, mm-hmm. but I was free of my IVs and I was just getting, you know, the odd shot of morphine. It wasn't a drip anymore. Um, again, feeling a little better. And a part of that was this new spirit in me, like chasing this dream. But I, and I hadn't been outside until that point. So I remember my parents wheeled me out the door and we just, we went outside and I just, I, it was such a, a cool experience. I just remember like feeling that fresh air and I had this new mindset. I didn't, I didn't really tell my parents that like of this plan, you know, really. And I remember we went out there and they got, they got pretty emotional just knowing that's when they, they like, okay, he, he's going to be okay here. Mm-hmm. And so they told me that they're like, you know, like what a crazy few weeks, you know, you're going to be okay, bud kind of thing. And I remember I turned to them and said, I'm going to be better than okay. Like I'm walking out of this fucking hospital. And I'm going to play hockey and I'm going to Brown. And, you know, as a, from a parent's perspective, and I could see it in their eyes, especially my mom's eyes. And that's Mm -hmm. why I want to share this. She said, God, please no. You know, that's what she wanted to say. Like, not, not supportive, but just like, just all they wanted to say was just, let's focus on now. Like, don't worry about that. And I could tell that that's what they were thinking, but they didn't say that. They both said, well, then go fucking do it and don't look back, you know? Unbelievable. And, and not a lot of parents would say that. And that's just, I get emotional thinking yeah. about it. But yeah, like they just, they've supported me 100% no matter what I decided or did. It was just all in. Mm-hmm. And I knew that they didn't think that, but they didn't have to say that, but they did. It's incredible. Um, so yeah, you talk about the support system where would would I have wavered if they were like, you're fucking crazy and just who cares about hockey? Like, or you know what I mean? They could have said anything like that. So, um, yeah, Yeah, totally. I, I fully believe that the support you have at home is so vital to how you take on life later. And it's really like a huge basis of how I raise my own daughter now. Cause I came from a very different aspect of it where I had no support at home. So the fact that I've come out of my trauma in the way that I have is really abnormal, but I love hearing stories of people who have had that at home and just how incredibly vital that was in your healing process. Like, oh, yeah. so amazing that you have parents like that. It's incredible. Yeah. And even like later into the year when I eventually was playing hockey, like, let's not confuse this where I shouldn't have been playing hockey. Mm-hmm. Um, from a doctor's perspective, I had no business playing hockey. But again, I. And I imagine it was still painful. It was very painful. Like, I was getting shot up with painkillers. I was on crutches. I could still barely walk coming to and from the game and going back to my parents especially my mom like she was in tears because they would come watch every game in vernon she would she was in tears of like what i was in her mind doing to my body right so were you still that really physical player going out there and taking these hits and like fighting and that was your role but it hurt a lot like anytime i got bumped like the skin grafts were just so sensitive so anytime like i got hit or bumped it just it was like a shot of electricity through me in a way, but. And you talk about this in your book too, how it was a very different time to play hockey. Oh, totally was. Where you decided yeah. what your limits were, not a medical professional deciding like, right. hey, Aaron, this isn't right. 
if this happened today, I I actually don't know if I would have been allowed to play mm-hmm. because yeah, like you said, the, you made the choice. Thankfully, that has changed, especially with concussions, because uh, again, this was in a day where there wasn't awareness around concussions, and there it would be like, well, how do you feel? And in your head, you're like, I don't even know where I am, mm-hmm. but you you still played because you didn't want to be perceived as weak, and that's shifted thankfully now where and and you don't get to make the decision like the spotters and doctors yeah they say and they can see the signs of a concussion like they probably knew i was concussed but they would recommend like i think you have a concussion how do you feel and Mm -hmm. you're like i feel good yeah and so and this is something i actually really want to touch on with you um you know men's mental health within the sport before we do though take us to brown what what did that look like for you? You had a really successful time at Brown, not again, without adversity. We're talking like yeah. appendix that you had to have removed right before kind of thing. But that is essentially what kind of your time at Brown was what kind of sparked the idea of like, hey, I could make it to the NHL. Yeah. Um, not for the first three years, though. Right. <laughs> right. So I, I got there and re- like, remember, that was that was my dream. That was my NHL. I didn't think about anything after that. So and my perspective on life had also changed going mm-hmm. through that burn injury where, you know, again, like if those guys don't tackle me and it could have been a lot, a lot worse, you know, maybe the ultimate worst kind of thing. So I got to Brown, I, I achieved my dream. I just went and had fun. Like I lived the U.S. college experience. I, I partied, I had a good time. I worked my ass off, you know, in hockey and I was, I was pre-med. So, you know, I was, I had a lot going on. But away from all of that, like I just soaked it all in and, you know, no cares in the world. I was like, I finally did it. And then I had my second like, yeah, epiphany or or fork in the road or whatever you want to call it after my junior year there. So I'm I'm 24 now. And after a season, one of the coaches comes over and he pulls me aside and said, hey, you ever thought about playing pro hockey? And I, I, (laughs) I literally laughed in his face and I was like, Sterl's. I play on the fourth line in one of the worst teams in college. No offense. <laughs> I've never talked to a scout or an agent. I don't, I've never thought about it. I don't have a reason to think about it. And he said, you know, I, I've never seen anyone hit the way you can hit since I can remember. And you can skate. I know you can fight. We couldn't fight in college, but from junior. And he said, I really think if you, if you worked on your game and, and the skills, I think you could have a solid five, 10 year career in the, the American League, which is the league right below the NHL. And who knows, maybe get a shot in the show one day. You, you never know. And that was it. That was it. And I, I just remember thinking, I said, thanks. Like, I didn't know what else to say. <laughs> and I went home that night and naturally thought about it. And then, yeah, the light bulb just went off again. And I was kind of like, Hey, idiot, you might have been leaving a little bit on the table here these yeah. last three years. And, uh, and I thought, like, if I can get, come back from that injury to come back and play hockey, like, why can't I go play in the NHL? That seems easier than what I had done here, right? And you, again, you talk about, like, the adversity, you know, always being a gift. And that's what I, th- I thought back to that. Because I knew if I could do that, I could do anything. I just didn't have that wherewithal those first three years to have that mindset. And so, yeah, I, I remember I, I was doing like a, a visualization and meditation. And I just remember asking myself that question that night. And I asked myself, like, you want to play in the NHL? And I, I remember I just opened my eyes and 
I said, fuck yeah, let's do it. And that's where like the, again, that, and I've I had that experience in the burn unit where the 100% commitment and choice and promise to myself, again, could I die chasing that dream? Probably not. But I was, that's the mindset I had was like, I am willing to, you know, die before giving up on that. And, and I did. And so that's when I had to go back to what did I know got me out of that burn unit? And it was the visualization practice. Um, and so this is really when I got the idea for like the mind movie and the cinematic mind mapping technique that I teach. Um, because I, I literally thought about it. Like if I had to write this like a movie and it'll be a damn good movie because of what I come from, then what does that look like? And I just started visualizing that. Um, you know, so, so I would open it up. I'd go back to the burn unit. I, I wouldn't relive like the trauma and, and adversity associated with that necessarily, but more the comeback and what it gave me um, and, and determination, those types of things. And then visualizing that senior year at Brown and just dominating on the ice and like that I- ideal self image every day. And then, you know, now the ending was the NHL. So signing that contract, walking down the tunnel for my first NHL game. Um, really like immersing myself and again, trying to like create an experience and evoke some sort of emotion through that, which it did. And yeah, everything just changed so fast. And you and did so, it. And I did it. Yeah. And it came, literally came out of nowhere, like for everyone else. Like, so within six months, I went from no one in the NHL knowing who I was to everyone. Like I took off, I was shot out of a cannon that year. So, and the, the thing with, with this practice too, is that The reality is it's not like, hey, let's sit on our ass and visualize this movie until our dreams come true, obviously. Um, It does like, it cultivates a very deep sense of like trust and belief in yourself. But the other side, you know, is it really drives like the non-negotiables and and choices every single day, every minute of Mm -hmm. every single day. Will this get me to the life I want to live? If that vision is strong enough, then guess those choices are just you're just going to make it Mm -hmm. and you're going to do it even though you might not want to in the moment it's like oh yeah but remember that vision and remember where we're going and it's like okay i'm going to get up and i'm going to go to the gym or i'm going to put in that extra skill session like i became whatever your version of obsessed with is like multiply that by infinity that's what i was that summer and going into that year and yeah i like and that's when i so now i paired the offense with and i didn't shy away from who i was you know, as a, as a player, like a role player grinder. So once I had both, that's when the NHL team started really paying attention. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> so I, I signed with Vancouver after our season and called my parents and they didn't believe me because again, I never told anyone about this master plan I had. Right. So you never actually told your parents until you'd signed or knew you were going to sign the contract. No, until I'd signed it. Unbelievable. Because, well, in a way it was, yeah, this practice was like, it was almost sacred to me. So I just, the only people that really knew were like my teammates because they would see scouts and I was talking to them kind of thing. But yeah. You were just so laser focused. I was so laser focused, but also there wasn't anything to share until I had actually done it. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty funny sort of ending where I, I called them and they knew I was having a good year mm-hmm. and they knew I was getting some interest um, and I might give the pro hockey thing a shot. But they figured like the East Coast League or the AHL, like the minor leagues, just for a year or two to say I did it kind of thing. And then I'd go on to to med school or something. Yeah. That's what they thought. And uh, 
yeah, after I signed, I, I called them and, and said, Hey, you know how I told you I've been talking with some, some pro scouts. And I said, yeah, I said, well, by pro, I meant the NHL. And there was like a, a silence on the phone and my dad finally responds. He's like, fuck off. <laughs> He's like, what I'm, a cool phone call to make. It was really cool. Yeah. So cool. And, and I just said that dad, I'm serious. Like you could probably go look on the internet. It's a pretty big story, especially like because in, in Vernon and Revelstoke, especially like people knew about that story. This is only five years later. Um, so it was a pretty popular and obviously like hometown or home, small town, home province team. It was like too good to be true. I think in his mind, right. I could have signed anywhere in the, in North America, any team. Um, but uh, it was Vancouver, all, all the teams. So I'm sure he was skeptical. So he repeated himself again. He was like, okay, get real. Like, what do you want to tell us? And I'm like, you can't, you don't have to believe me. I'm going to Winnipeg in like two days to go play with the moose. And then he was like, you're not kidding, are you? And I'm like, no. And then I'm like, literally go look online. They went and looked online and he was like, holy shit. That's unbelievable. Yeah, and so it was pretty cool. You literally idea. lived your dream. And I want to get into that. Your and how, you know, post NHL, how you've come to start this business and all the things you're doing. But you said something in your book. You were talking about how um nobody really realizes the stress and pressure that comes from being in that in that league. You know, it's a business at that point. And, yeah. you know, you're trying to keep a job and everyone, there's always somebody that can take that job for you. And I want to talk a little bit about men's mental health. Yeah. Um, it's something that I believe is not talked about nearly enough. And you say this in your book, actually, that we have come so far in men's mental health, but we still have a long way to go. You know, boys are considered to be tough and protectors and kind of not complain and get out there and play even if you're injured. And when you when you talk about that, we've come so far, but we still have a long way to go. Could you elaborate on that? What does that mean to you? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think we spend a lot of time on this and go anywhere um, with it. But yeah, like I, I think the culture around even sports, but especially hockey has changed and, and starting to change. but. I think we've we've come a long way in like that support I think for for being vulnerable and and being weak which is you know very important I think because we weren't taught that mm-hmm. um and that was a big struggle for me and it wasn't until I got vulnerable and showed weakness that I actually got stronger through that healing after hockey especially um but I, I do think like for for boys especially I don't we can't go too far one way either where, you know, I mean, this is a, we can go down a rabbit hole on this, but like boys and girls are very different typically. Totally. Right. And I think what I've learned is like as a man and what we should be teaching the the boys as well is that men like to, they need to, they need to build something. They need to have a purpose, mm-hmm. right? Like literally you could build something with your hands. You could build a project like, you just need, I find like for me, I need to create. I just like, I'm a creator and I need purpose that way. Um, so I think we we can't go through, we can't go too far one way of robbing them of that. Mm-hmm. They still, they still can be strong, right? But we, we don't have to maybe define it the way we used to in terms of like, well, yes, yeah, strong, but you, you could still talk about your feelings, 
So that lives very differently, mm-hmm. right? And also, I think, too, just talking about if you're struggling or not, like mental right. health issues and these kinds of things are often talked about with girls going on antidepressants and all these teenage girls yeah. are so depressed and all this stuff. But, you know, these kind of issues don't aren't gender specific. They're human specific, right? So yeah. the weakness surrounding talking about if you're struggling, I think, is the problem. Totally. You know, there's a, the issues that, or the struggles, I should say, that these kids deal with, like, they're not going anywhere. So mm-hmm. that's why I don't have the answer. So I just, I don't know if it's the, the support system. So so here's an example of something that I noticed that's a major, major problem with young kids, boys and girls, um, especially like in sport, any sport. And it's it's the number one thing and mistake that I see them make. And a lot of this is just the society that, that we live in. But they tie their performance as an athlete to their self, mm-hmm. to their sense of self. And that's a major problem. You have to separate that, right? But because it's not, as soon as you have a good game or when you have a good game, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm worthy. I'm a, I'm a good person. I have a sense of purpose or whatever. And then as soon as they have a bad game, that's when the negative spiral mm-hmm. happens. And it's like, I'm worthless. Like, I'm no good. Like, yeah. I suck. Like, what's the point? What am I doing with my life? You are 100% right. Their self-worth is completely... They have, to be diff- they have to be live different in different silos, right? Yeah. And, and, and a- hockey aside, like, I watch my daughter con- competitively dance, and her yeah. self-worth is completely tied mm-hmm. to how well she performs. And you're right. This is a problem. But I will say, when it comes to what you're doing, you know, with visualization and teaching these techniques, it really takes you, like you said, out of that experience, out of your body. And it teaches this like mental toughness that doesn't come naturally. It's a practice. And I actually, before competitions, I do get my daughter to meditate and we do, we've yeah. been doing it for a couple of years. And she, it just really, that anxiety, that, that, um, pressure to perform is yeah. so intense. Yeah. How old is she? She's 10. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's just so much pressure on these kids and like the the idea of perfectionism for them is is it's very strong. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's the issue, yeah. right? Where all the kids that I work with like they just if they make a mistake like the world's over. And it's because their sense of self is tied to their performance. Mm-hmm. Right? It doesn't mean you can't show emotion if you have a shit game. Yeah. Right? That's where the that's where the the world's changed now. Like so, there's things that have improved and things that have gotten worse. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, maybe that will happen for for a time. But yeah, like I think what's improved is the support for for young boys and men to to be vulnerable and show weakness. That doesn't mean you're not strong. It just mm-hmm. means you're human and you have feelings, right? Mm-hmm. But I think what what's changed for the worse is just the society and the pressure and the perfectionism. And I mean, I see it sometimes from parents, social media is a problem, mm-hmm. um, peer pressure for just, it's just perfectionism. Like when I played, you know, 10, 20 years ago, my, my sense of self was never, I mean, did people struggle with that? Some people did. But now it's like shot through the roof mm-hmm. in terms of the percentage of people that deal with that. It just, I could have a bad game and I could go live my life after and, you know, focus on the next one. Mm-hmm. The kids can't do that. Anymore. No, it's true. And, and even so, as you get older, like if it's not set 
and bred into you when you're younger and allowing you to practice this. You know, it actually makes me think about something you talked about in your book, Tragically Losing Your Friend and Teammate, Rick Rippin, mm-hmm. to suicide. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned that it was such a shock because he seemed so happy. Right. Do you think, you know, looking back on that experience, do you think it had anything to do with happiness? Do you think it was tied to like concussions? Because we know a lot more now about concussions. And how did that make you look at your own mental health? Yeah. I mean, I guess I'll answer the the latter first. It definitely put things into perspective. And so this is where I started to have a shift and started feeling a little bit more of like that anxiety and stress of my role mm-hmm. because the other uh we had Wade Belak and Derek Bugard that also died that summer. So it was a really like traumatic summer for the hockey community. And and I didn't know if and I don't think they they necessarily did know was was CTE or or concussion issues uh for for Rip was that associated. He dealt with some demons in the past which which we knew. But I I don't know, I just really worried I guess that I didn't want to you know, maybe have these demons start creeping into my head, um, you know, which we sometimes all have to some degree, mm-hmm. but for it to become maybe, you know, a little, little less manageable is, is, is potentially dangerous. So that's, you know, the, my first two years in the league, I was fighting and I, it didn't affect me. I was like, bring it on. I'm new. I'll fight anyone. Um, after like, yeah, year three, year four, especially into year five with my neck injury, that's when I just, I just started worrying, like, am I doing like irreparable damage potentially here? And, and that's like, it's just always a thought that lingers. And that's where the stress um, can, can really, you know, affect you that way where, because with, with the fighting, with that role, it's, it's not like, you, it's not like boxing or the UFC where you get, it's like you fight and then, hey, you have a six month reprieve. Like, mm-hmm. this is like, this doesn't go away, except in the summer. Yeah. But it's there. It's like, okay, why? Well, I got in a fight this night and then, but now I'm, my brain's going two nights later, I'm playing, you know, whatever team with, and they got so-and-so that's going to, and he's six, five, two fifty, And I'm like, I'm six, one, 200 pounds. Like if this guy hits me, I'm going to be, I might be screwed. <laughs> the odds aren't in my favor. No, yeah. But I'm like, I have to fight him, you know? And so that, that really, that, yeah, that really started weighing on them. And I know that weighs on a lot of guys. Um, so I think that was, that was maybe part of it, but what was the first part of that question again? You know, just talking about how he seemed so happy. Yeah. Yeah. I have, this is one thing where, again, I wouldn't have made it the difference, but I, I really just wish I, I would have maybe asked him how he was doing more mm-hmm. on that. Um, but I think people fight a fight that we don't know about a lot. We of sometimes don't see. With, with yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but I, I've heard that that can be uh, a pattern with people with depression and unfortunately by before suicide they they sometimes go on they ride a high right for the the final crash mm-hmm. sadly um but I, I think it's just another testament to the fact that you know with professional sports it's it's not all glam and it's not easy mm-hmm. um money doesn't fix any of that so so take those things separately and they're still humans and there's like a lot of stress to perform right could i be sent down i had i didn't i came to the brink every day like i could get sent down today mm-hmm. and if i don't fight that guy i could get sent down like i should probably fight but like what about my health 
uh, it's just like just run around and it, it's, it's your job it's your job yeah and, you, and i think yeah that for some guys that obviously weighs on it and then you you know throw into the hat you know some some predisposed disposed pre, uh depression tr- past traumas mm-hmm. then like it just it's a recipe for for disaster and um and now again we have like more support and tools that but i, I think my point is that it's not all you know roses like a lot of people think well and i imagine too what comes with being in that league extreme highs yeah and very low lows yeah right like you're coming out you're winning you're fighting you're doing all these things and then all of a sudden you haven't got a goal in like six games and you're stressed about your job or getting sent down or whatever right like riding that wave of high highs and low lows is with somebody especially who is struggling with depression or mental health issues must be very hard Right. to um navigate and manage totally i can't imagine and i think too probably back then it wasn't widely talked about right like we said like right. it's it was a little bit of a weakness and now you know like you have guys even coming out and talking about it like Kerry K- price fam- famously talked about his mental health struggles while playing in the nhl in montreal and you know getting help for alcohol use and yep. you know it's do you think that it's becoming more talked about and we're seeing like this gap kind of close and it it's it's safer for people to come out and say hey i have this issue totally is yeah yeah i, th- I think you said it you said it perfect I, the gap's closing mm-hmm. i don't think it's closed because i think the reality is and that's maybe going back to where like we still have some some ways to go where sometimes that that old school mentality like it still lives in the game and but again like we don't I don't, we don't want to go too far one way in terms of like, it's still like a, it's still a mean sport and yep. it's still rough. And, um, but it's more like we guys need places to go to talk about it mm-hmm. and, and support each other and not feel weak. And like, so again, that gap's closing. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's closed because like I said, I think that old school mentality, uh, again, not, it's not all bad, but for that, uh, point, yeah, it, it, it's it's sometimes just exists where it's like suck it up just get out yeah kind of thing for sure so it's not gone yeah absolutely i want to talk about you know this career ending hit that happened to you um when you were playing and what that kind of looked like for you post nhl you know there probably was a ton of feelings of like lost what do i do now you've played hockey your entire fucking life yeah, and so I tell people this: like life after hockey for me was way harder than mm-hmm. the burn, the burn injury recovery. So I'm, and I've realized, you know, because I'm older now, but like if physical pain and physical adversity with, or if you put that in front of me, like if there's a wall in front of me and there's something that I want on the other side of that wall, and I just have to physically go through it, I'll go through that mm-hmm. all day. Um, but after hockey, that's when the the emotional and spiritual components like really started coming into my life. Um, and then you talk about mental health. There's a lot, there's different components of it. There's physical, there's mental, um, emotional, spiritual. And so we're fast forwarding a bit, but I didn't realize until I actually talked with, you know, a counselor because, and we can get into like all the other shit that happened to me after hockey <laughs> because it was just, I it got, was wild. I got pulled so far down into the darkness that it was, I was in a rough place, but I, and I didn't come out of that until I had this 
day with my with my son and I I realized I needed to like get some help here and I needed to change this. Yeah, you know, let's backtrack a little bit sure. before we get into that cuz what happened to you post NHL? Yeah, we can list is, them off. Guess, yeah, but. because you know it's interesting because you know prior it was very much these physical scars that you yeah. were dealing with and like this physical pain that you were just like trying to get through. Yeah. And this then, is fitting with the podcast. Exactly. Yeah. And then you know we fast forward post NHL and you're yeah. dealing with these really emotional invisible scars that you probably hadn't dealt with before. Yeah. So I have both, right? And yeah. The physical scars, like I said, I could relate to them like the wall and breaking through it. Like I could do that all day long. Um but but yeah, so I guess to to kind of go through it in in summary, uh, the the loss of identity that I had was was very very real and very hard. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of guys struggle with that, um, especially in in well, hockey and in other sports, I'm sure. But for me, it just ended. Yeah. So that that hit happened. I it was, I knew I was in rough shape, and I eventually had to get a fusion surgery. I had another year in my contract. I tried to come back and play, and it just it didn't. It didn't work. I had a really hard time shutting off that break through the wall because it was very different because with my burn injury, I couldn't make the burns worse. It was more like, can you deal with this level of pain and accept the risks that potentially come with an infection? And like, to me, looking back, like that was easy. And with the neck, I could make that a lot worse, like the, the ultimate worst, like break it or have another fusion, which is which you don't want. That's like life changing. And I was, I was 30. So I was, you know, starting to think about kids. I was already married. So I really just had to ask myself, like, you know, do you want to play with your kids? And do you want to like be in pain again all the time? And so that was really hard to turn that off. Mm -hmm. But you know, with, with advice from the doctors this time, they didn't tell me like, you can't play, but they basically said like, you can't play like you, how you are now. Um, And my neck still feels the same. Like, I made the decision then, and, and it was the right one to, mm-hmm. to stop, but it was tough because it just ended like that. And so you're a hockey player for 30 years and it's just, now that's gone. And when it's gone, like it's long gone, you know, you're not in that circle anymore. So that was really hard to deal with. I, I said, you know, after that neck injury, because I knew it was kind of coming just the way I felt trying to play that year. It was just, it wasn't a good situation. And I said, I'm going to take a year off and just enjoy time. Uh, so my wife now, or my ex-wife, but my wife then was pregnant. So I said, I'm just going to take a year off, like reset, look look after my neck, do the rehab kind of thing. And just kind of explore what I want to do. But yeah, like, but that loss of identity was hard to, because it was just always that thought of like, what the hell are you going to do? Who are you now? Mm-hmm. Um and then, yeah, you mix in all this other adversity that happened, like in that same window. So she almost died in the birth of uh, my first son, um, and I mean that literally. Like it was mm-hmm. really, really traumatic. Which, by the way, like that's something I've really noticed too. Where it's such a different experience of if you're the one that the trauma is happening to versus versus me watching it. So I've I've had this now in multiple, unfortunately, multiple times in my life where watching someone in physical pain or and or dying like they're going it's it's bad uh that's lives very very different in the body than you know because I, I go back to my burn injury um and i've talked to counselors about this like i have some some trauma with the event mm-hmm. i used to have this reoccurring nightmare all the time um 
but I don't have any trauma with like the adversity, but part of it was because of this, the way I framed it. So yes. again, it's a gift to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, just like seeing the helplessness felt when you watch someone going through that, I'm still dealing with those things. I bet. Yeah. So yeah. that, that's, that lives very, very differently. Um, well, and I think it's important to note too, it wasn't just, you know, watching your ex-wife almost die while she, after she had your son, but then, yeah. you know, your dad gets ALS yeah. and you're watching him. That kind happened of, like a month later. Like <laughs> it just. It's unbelievable what you've been through. And then, you know, fast forward and you meet somebody that is you're so in love with and you guys are so happy and you have this, again, a really big struggle of getting pregnant. And she was very, very sick and went through this huge traumatic event. Like you have seen the people you love to the depths of like hell, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's so like I said, it's it's been a it's been a ride. And but that yeah, that trauma lives lives different. So when you say that you're still dealing with it, how are you working through that? You're, you're still seeing a counselor. Like what, what does that kind of look like for you? Yeah, I I'll see a counselor from time to time. Now I just know again, like my visualization practice Mm -hmm. and just like focusing on gratitude is a big thing with me and and kind of weaving the two together. Um, and just thinking about all the amazing things we have planned and, and not focusing on, um, on maybe like, lack or or could that happen again and just again it's like meditation you see it come in and they're never going to go away and so it's just seeing it pass and then focus and be present and and this practice for me again i get to go transport myself to this reality that i i get the saying it there's no limitation with it right i love that and i actually really want to talk to you about this program that you have developed and just i want to say like i want everyone to read your book because the story in it the details in it it's incredible you can't not be inspired by it you also you know I always say like, I have no business living this life. Like I really, truly feel that way for what I've been through. And it's so humbling when you hear other people's stories because you're like, oh, okay. Like it's not just me. I'm not alone. And this like feels so much harder to me than what I've been through. And you've just come out of it so inspiring and helping other people. And you've really turned your pain into resilience and really a business. So yeah. take us through that. Like what, what does that look like for you? Talk about your business. Cause I'm fascinated by it. Yeah. Well, I guess I can, I can tell you how this sort of came to be. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was COVID. I had like, so I worked in wealth management after I retired. Didn't love that. You know, I just kicked the door open. It wasn't the right one. And then my dad was slowly progressing. And I, I, I found, found that I was craving some sort of physical adversity. Again, I like I like that challenge. Um, so I thought, what's the hardest thing I can do? <laughs> and I'm like, and I started researching, and then I saw that Ironman triathlon. I'm like, that sounds perfect. I can't swim. I mean, I'll <laughs> drown, but like, I can't go back and forth in the pool. Yeah, <laughs> and I was but like, it's probably that training aspect, right? Like, have, you're working purpose. towards something. It's that mm-hmm. purpose, and then so I I thought that's perfect, and then I can raise some money for ALS and. Um, so part of it was, it was that, but it was also like a distraction for me. I needed to just, I needed to go do something. And, um, I had met my now wife in that time as well. Um, and then a few business opportunities came up that thank God that didn't happen because COVID hit really shortly after that. So I was back to the drawing board. Like, again, like what, this is almost, this is about five years after I retired and I had tried different things 
And I'm like, okay, now what, like, what am I going to do now? Who am I? And I remember I was just, I, we had moved into our place in Lake country where we were. And I was, I'd go sit on and I'd visualize and meditate on this bench every day. And I just, I remember thinking, having these thoughts of like, what am I going to do? Who am I? And then I started thinking about just my life and, and the, the, the injury. And well, at this time, like my, my wife and I had started to go through all this adversity and just, again, like how every piece of adversity was just this gift. And I was just really thankful. And this book had always been a side project. So, you know, especially the guys that I played junior with were like, this is insane, man. Like, cause they saw what I was putting my body through. No one else saw that. And the, yeah, it, this was craziness. Like you need to write a book after what you've, you know, when I got to Brown. And so this is like, you know, 17 years later or whatever, 18 years later. And, uh, that's when I, I thought maybe it's time to, to give this, this book a, a shot and start writing my story. Now I was terrified as shit. I told you that before we, before we did this, that, you know, to like, just throw it out there. Because again, I wasn't taught to be vulnerable and show weakness um, and throw it all out there. So for me, that was a really big mm-hmm. challenge with that. Um, and then I, that almost pulled me out of it. I'm like, yeah, maybe I won't do that. And then at the end of the day, I just thought like, if I could just ha- like, if I could help one person with this. Um, and for me, like, it was just, if I can help someone just hold on to the dream a little longer, right? Because I made those mistakes. Um, then that then that would be a win. And so then I said, okay, well, that's 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 good. Let's let's start that. And I just started writing it. Um and then how my business started was yeah, again, I kind of had this light bulb halfway, three quarters of the way through my book. And that's where I was like, ah, that's what I need to do. I need to teach people this practice that that has and I say this practice has it's not only got me out of the burn unit and, and got, you know, went to Brown, went to the NHL. Mm-hmm. It saved my life after hockey and in, a, in a, like a very dark time. And that's, you know, why I was so passionate about it. So I'm like, that's what I need to do. And so I launched this, I, I developed these programs. And for me, it wasn't like I didn't have to come up with anything. I mean, for the most part, I'm just, you know, mm-hmm. telling them about what I did, how I did it, why I did it. And really just created a couple programs based on that. And yeah, this is a few years ago now, but um, it's gotten me here and I'm super busy working with athletes, non-athletes, teams. Um, so it's been amazing. Yeah. And people are really, every, I have had no one that, you know, has wondered like, why am I doing this? Or this isn't helping me. Everyone really loves it. And um, again, it's meant to be fun where it's like, you're just, you're daydreaming. If again, I tell them, think about your life as a movie, take away all the limitations. You get to write that. And that's what I help them with and just live that reality. And it, and it starts to affect their life because they start to feel differently and their choices start becoming different. So it's been so rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I mean, I've worked with kids of all ages, which is, you know, everyone's a little bit different, but that's been really fun. And yeah, just doing a bunch of different. So my other arm of the business is the speaking. So I'm doing a lot of keynotes and workshops with, you know, different teams, 
different i'm getting pulled in more into the corporate world a little bit which is interesting and because this stuff applies to everything not just athletics mm-hmm. right um so yeah that's where i'm at and busy traveling around lots and yeah i'm very grateful for, it's amazing for the you journey. know what i love about this and i love when you say that you've worked with kids of all ages is we are so trained now to have such limiting beliefs about what we're yeah. capable of and what we can do and yeah. going into these kids environments especially like in the locker room or wherever it is you're doing this and it's really helping them to dream big and be yeah. imaginative which so many of our kids are losing now and i, I love this like yeah i think it's like so groundbreaking that teams are hiring you to come in and do these kind of practices with their kids this is great yeah and i think i mean i kind of think that's one thing technology is great um for many things mm-hmm. i think it's helped maybe rob the kids of this time because there's not as much play in the world and there's not as much creativity mm-hmm. and they don't have time to to really like do that daydreaming and deep thinking of, you know, what they want. It's just like they're on their phone all the time or they're playing game. They're inside all the time, you know? So Mm -hmm. I think it's just this different world. And like you said, these limiting beliefs, because now they're growing up watching uh, social media and and perfection. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing, oh, I'm not that. I'll never be that. Yeah. I do it sometimes, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, but when you get that from a young age, especially, then mm-hmm. it's just, it's just really cementing those pathways, um, which can be changed. We mm-hmm. know um, yeah. it's, it's not easy, but mm-hmm. so yeah, just really for framing that perspective for some of these younger kids is so huge. Yeah. I love this. It's actually, you and I were talking before this and I said that this was actually something I used to do as a kid when which I is was, amazing. Yeah. yeah, I was living in a really traumatic environment and I would. You know how you talked about in the burn unit, you could go somewhere else. And that's essentially what I did. And even to this day, you know, even moving to Kelowna, all these big moves that we've made as a family, these are things that I visualized before, long before we even knew how it was going to happen. So I fully believe in what you're doing. I love this. I'm like full support of it. It's so great. Wait, so how did that make, like, how did you feel when you did that? And when you when I was a kid, did that, did visualization or what did you notice with that? When I was a kid, I would do it and I could actually transport myself to somewhere else. Like yeah. I was so unhappy and scared in the environment that I was living in that in order for me to get out of that fear, I always had this belief that, um, you know, all the people who lived in those really big houses that are so perfect and beautiful, those families were happy. So right. I would take myself to those places and, you know, we're sitting in my house right now. Like I have achieved those things yeah. in the city. I've always wanted to live in and you know I felt so at peace I just wasn't wasn't scared anymore and I would try and keep my eyes as tightly closed as I could for as long as I could because I knew when I opened them I was back in that space but the kids have an innate ability to dream and then we slowly lose that over age right and I'm assuming you there's no phones then right Mm -hmm. so you could go to that place or have the opportunity to go to that place but what do the kids do now yeah. They go to their they phone. They pick up their phone. And then and then it's more lack and it's more, you know, I'll never be this, I'll mm-hmm. never be that. Look at all these people. I'm a piece of shit. And then that the spiral just happens. Totally. Versus going into that, mm-hmm. you know, going into that space. And yeah. yeah. You know, even with this podcast, I had such limiting belief. I was so 
certain of what I was supposed to do. I knew like at a cellular level that this was what I was meant to do is like have these conversations with people like you. But there was also this part of me, like you said, these limiting beliefs that are like, oh, okay, well, who's going to want to talk to me? I'm a nobody. I came from a small town and like I have nothing to offer. But, you know, as I'm doing my own visualizations before I even knew about you and your program, like I would do my own form of meditation and, you know, Every single thing I've wanted to happen has happened. So the power in the brain, I'm fascinated. I mean, yeah. you even have a science background. Like you have, you've studied this yeah. and it's incredible. It's so, it's so interesting. Yeah. I'm fascinated. So yeah. who do you work with? You work with anybody. You're kind of going yeah. into the corporate world, not just athletes, right? Yeah, correct. I, I mean, I, I would say my business is like 80 to 85% athletes. So primarily I'm working mm-hmm. with athletes of all ages i found i i've actually gotten like younger as the years have progressed because of what we just talked about Mm -hmm. and a lot of kids struggle with like performance anxiety is a big one because again they can't make mistakes and the fear of failure is it's just so prevalent and that's even going back to you know what you said about your your podcast and how i felt at different times in my life like now with my experiences and in the visualization practice i have i'll try anything yeah like i love music I'm going to write an album one day yep. and, you know, I think it'll do well because yep. I be- I have belief in myself that I know I can just achieve the unthinkable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, primarily athletes of all ages. Again, I've worked with kids from 12 to professional age in their 30s kind of thing. And then, yeah, like some some people in, in business or they just want it for their personal lives and they're retired. I've worked with people that are, you know, over 65 and they... They like the idea of like, oh, this movie. I don't know what that. I what could that look like in retirement age, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So, if people want to learn more, where can they find you? Yeah, I would say like my socials are uh, at Aaron Valpatty, and my website's just www.aaronvalpatty.com. And there's more info on on the courses, uh, things like that. The book is online. Yes, read the book. Yeah, it, it was in local bookstores. I th- I think they're sold out. I I, I got the last copy at Mosaic Books Did you? in downtown Kelowna. Yes. Okay, it's online as well. Amazing. <laughs> um, we end every interview with one question. I would love to know. You've been through so much. What is one piece of advice you would give to your younger self? I th- I think it would have to be embrace the dark times. They're they're going to be a gift mm-hmm. because yeah, you don't you don't know that. It's so true. Yeah. Aaron, thank you so much for being here today. This was incredible. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Jessalyn. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope that today's episode provided insight, inspiration, and comfort to anyone who is dealing with the effects of trauma. Remember, you are not defined by your scars and you are not alone in your healing journey. If you enjoyed listening, please make sure to rate, review, and share this episode with a friend who could benefit from listening. We'll see you next week.